Bienvenue a Getting Curious. Oh my God, I don't know if I said that right away. I'm Jonathan Vanessa, and every week I sit down. I wonder if Anthony would know. He totally would. Anyway, every week I sit down for a gorgeous little 30-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, I'm curious about what it takes to be an author, which is why I sit down with Jody Pico. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vanessa. I'm very excited to... Uh, get this because you know first of all it's very rare that I interview someone where they can bamboozle me with their own intellect and verbology before we even get going because <laughs> usually I'm like I'm gonna wait I was like don't say anything else like let's start recording but in your case we had so much to gab about pre-interview <laughs> honey I feel like we've already done 18 18 podcasts we totally could so welcome without Thank you. further ado gorgeous Jody Pico <laughs> who's I'm grateful to say last name that I'm guessing is like French in derivation. I butchered before we started recording. Thank gosh. So, Cause you know, I used to butcher it right on air, but now I have enough, you know, I can do it. <laughs> I, I, I started realizing I should ask people how to pronounce it before, but I was, have people just been fumbling your gorgeous last name? Yeah. You know, it, it has a whole Ellis Island story and like vowels that were changed. So frankly, if you're trying, I'm happy, but it's like you're, you, you've not to name drop, but you've, you've, you've sold 14 mil, million copies of of your of your, that, that's a lot and <laughs> like but like your your french last name henny is she it's like i i should get it together is the point and i apologize do not apologize how did your brain cuz you know i remember like fiction it's like fiction fake just so that i remember that it's like you know you're telling a story or you're like you know you're making one up but yours is more gorgeous and multi-layered because mm-hmm. you do so much like really intense gorgeous credible research like in in the stories that you tell right so like sometimes i think i'm getting my question i swear to god sometimes <laughs> i feel sometimes that people like will look at me and they're like like as i'm telling them like a weird daydream that i've just had or something and they're like, and they're like what happened like when did it all happen like how did your brain get like that how did your brain get like this? Like, how did you learn to tell these stories? Like, did it happen when you were, you were like a little baby, ginger baby with gorgeous curly hair running around? And <laughs> you're like, I'm going to tell stories. Like, Yeah. I mean, my mom says my first book that I wrote, I was five years old. It was called The Lobster That Was Misunderstood. I think he was. A, he was. I'm. I'm amazed that I knew that word at five, actually, or that I was Misunderstood. writing. Misunderstood. I know. Um, and, you know, I've always... Uh, I've always, I think, been a creator that way, even before I could really. Where make were you stories. from, just to set the scene? Oh, I was from Long Island. I grew up in the suburbs. Oh. My dad worked on Wall Street. Does that count as Long Island City or whatever? No, no, we that's were further out. We were like Gatsby, Long Island. Like we were on the East End. Is that know? like the LARR or whatever when you're going yes. to Fire Island, honey? Yes, you're, exactly. You're, I got there. Okay, yeah. got it. Yep. Never been to Fire Island, but if I had, just kidding. You know. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so that's where you're from. Yeah, my dad used to commute like, you know, three hours into the city by the time he finished taking all of his different public transportation. My mom ran a nursery school, and I came from a long line of teachers, and I gave birth to my, many teachers as well. And, you know, it was just like a really suburban, normal upbringing. And I was really encouraged to um, to read. One of my first memories was um, when I was old enough to sign my name, I could get a library card and I went with my mom to the library and she would come home with a stack of books and I got to come home with a stack of books and that was a huge big deal for me. Because you had a voracious appetite to learn. Totally, yeah. And and when I went to college, I was really lucky to be accepted into a creative writing program at Princeton um, where I was able in the 1980s to write a creative thesis and study from people who were published writers instead of just 
teachers who wanted to Question. be writers. Yes, yes, sir. In the 80s, in Princeton, yes. you're minding your own business. Mm-hmm. What is the, do you remember, like, what the breakdown was from men to women, like, percentage-ish in your class? Like, were you, like, the only girl? Was there 10 girls? Was it kind of half and half? That's a really good question. I, you know, honestly, I had a very skewed perception of Princeton because I was the only woman on the men's heavyweight rowing team. I was the first girl to set foot in a men's what boat. What even Princeton. is that? What's a heavyweight <laughs> rowing team? Is it's that like, like that? There's like a sculling thing in the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. You know, the she's like on MSNBC Sports, like after right. midnight. Yes, and it, like nobody watches it because it's no super offense. Boring, I, as but, soon as yeah. I said that, I was like, oh god, I just right. stumbled into like you know. But is she <laughs> no, still but, your sport if it's your thing? No, it wasn't. It was just I was like really bored and and I liked the way it looked. I knew nothing about it, and so I spent most of my time around like a bunch of guys who were big brothers who were like you know six feet tall and 250 that's pounds. really interesting so you were just like i'm gonna be a rower you so you've really oh. always kind of been like a little pioneer trendsetter like you're <laughs> just like foraging your own gorgeous path yeah except not realizing it like I, I would call it accidental activism like sometimes you want to tell a story and you wind up finding out truths that are so upsetting to you that you need to convey them to other people and that's what i love about writing fiction the really cool thing about fiction is that um when you talk about topics that most people don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole in daily conversation, you know, Throw things, a few out there. Um, okay. Like done. racism, yeah. Yeah. abortion rights, um, you know, a designer, uh, save your siblings, um, uh, homophobia, uh, gay parenting. Um, you know, I mean, I can keep going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you're like, honey. That's, that's, what, that's my life. You don't, you're like, you don't get these like commas and these accolades for nothing, honey. Right, but, you're like, I go there. But like, people don't go there. And they don't want to talk about it because, you know, usually you're afraid of saying the wrong thing or stepping on someone's toes or offending someone. And the beauty of fiction is when someone picks up a novel, they think they're going to be whisked away. They're going to be carried away and they're going to get to escape. And if I do my job right, I've created situations and characters that are so real that by the time you close the book, you've not only learned something, hopefully from a point of view different from your own, but you're still thinking about that issue and you want to talk about that issue. So to me, fiction is like the secret weapon. So how do you build your gorgeous stories like once you get the, like once that gorgeous creative like seed has been planted and you're like, I have got to like foster you baby gorgeous plant of novel. Like what is like your, what is your movie making Aaron Brockovich, honey, she's going through like, she's going to the PG&E plant, she's getting that dead floating frog. She's driving the kids to school, honey, she's doing the most. Right. Like what does that look like when you're getting your research together? So for me, I tend to, um, I do a lot of research through reading to get a good sort of base knowledge. And then I begin looking for people who I can shadow or talk to or who can really help me dive into the whatever topic I need to know most about. Because these are people who are living the life and walking the walk, and I'm not doing that. I'm just like an observer for a little while. And when I'm very lucky, I find people who let me shadow them um, and really almost inform the characters that I begin to create. I do like 85% of my research before I write a single word. Mm. Um, And it's easier for me that way because even, for example, if I never tell you what my character eats for breakfast, I need to know that. Right? Because yeah. you've, you've got to be the authority on that character. You know, so every book is completely different. Some books take, you know, um, six months of research. Sometimes it's one month of research. It kind of depends on how hard it is to get to what I need to know. And, like, based off of, like, your own experiences, because I bet some of your experiences have informed some of, like, your knowledge of, like, 
some of the subjects that you're writing on. So maybe like that would make it take like less or more time. You know, not as much as you would think. There are a couple of books that really came out of personal experiences and reactions that I was having to issues, but. For the most part, thank God I'm not my characters because they yeah. live some pretty awful lives, and and I don't. I have a really great life, and I have a great family, and I'm super lucky. Um, but I I do think that I I tend to veer towards the topics that I choose because of what's going on in my life at a given time. So, like, I started off writing books about mothers and daughters, but I was closer in age to the daughter than I was to the mom. And then I got married, and I started writing about relationships. Are they ever 50-50? The answer is no, they're not. And then I started writing about kids, and like, for about 10 years, it was all the terrifying things that can happen to your children, one after another. Because how many books have you written? Um, uh, like, I think 20. 20 gorgeous yeah. published books. Yeah. And it's been over... Wait, well, so 25 <laughs> novels, 25, Queen. I yes. love that. You're Sorry. just been busy. No, don't ever apologize. You're not allowed. <laughs> it's not your fault. So accomplished, so successful. Um, but um, this is a more micro question, but then there's sure. going to be more macro ones. So mm-hmm. my one therapist, I can't remember which one, but one like taught me that like, you know, the healthiest relationships, like the most secure, they're like this. Right, like, and yeah. I, you guys can't see me, but like, um, like if you know, I'm holding my hands up next to each other, and they're like, you know, uh, like blades. If you're a cheerleader, like not donuts, like they're blades, right? And it's like they're like this, like they're right, like next to each other. But then when like things happen in life, and it becomes like this, yeah, and it gets like this, like that's when like sometimes like you can't bridge that gap, and yeah. like, and it like, so is that true? Like they're not ever fifty fifty. Like, is there always one who loves more? Like, is there? What yeah. is it? What have you learned? I think, I mean, hopefully my husband's not listening to this podcast right now, but I think that... Is he technologically savvy? Can even like, no. Can even... Okay, he'll never even find that button I on the phone, the girl. I am the Steve Jobs of my household. Yeah, you're so, fine no. then. Yeah, okay. He's fine. He but- got it. <laughs> Just delete that app on his phone, honey. He'll never find it. So I don't think it's ever 50-50. I think it, it might be 70-30. It might be 60-40, but I think it flip-flops. Um, so no, I, I do think that relationships do have a give and take, but I think... You get into trouble when it's always 60-40 in one direction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look, I've been married to the same guy for 29 years now, and he's amazing. And I know that the life that we have, especially my career, is not what he signed on for. And yet, you know, we managed to adapt as a unit. So it's almost like you're saying it's like offsetting. Like that whole thing of like, it's yeah. if it's always 60-40 in one direction, like in some other area in your life that's like equally cute, it needs to be 60-40 the other way. Exactly. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. Because, you know, well, according to Stan Tacken, who wrote this book on like, have you ever heard of like um, PACT therapy? It's like the physio-psychological approach to couples therapy. No, I haven't. It's like psycho, or no, it's like psychobiological approach to couples therapy, PACT. Um he kind of paraphrasing here, but basically he says, you know, like everyone's like a pain in the ass and like a burden and like you, this, like you kind of like there is no like perfect soulmate because it's right. kind of like we all like have like nervous systems that have stuff, you know, going on from like the whole nurture thing. Plus there's like the whole nurture thing, like nature and nurture. And it's kind of just everyone's like they're, you know, got their bag. Everyone's a mixed bag. So it's kind of just like finding someone who you can create a secure functioning relationship with. But, right. you know, but there's probably like hopefully not one because like how dreary would that be if like something happened and you just have to be alone forever? I think what you need is an anchor. You need someone holding your kite when you're the kite. You know, one of the ways that he delineates people is like anchors. Really? Wave, yeah. Anchors. Waves and islands. Huh. He, that's like that's like one way that he talks about people. He also talks about like you know like tortoises and hares or like um like how you process things, like how quickly you process. He, I like it. He gives you kind of like a common language for being able. Like you know, you really piss me the fuck off because. <laughs> 
you know, you are an island with wavish tendencies, and I am, you know, I'm a nightmare. Yeah. yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it gives you like a good common language. But anyway, back to your gorgeous books. So, but you got kind of like offset in certain ways. Yeah. And then I was saying back to like how your process of like you know creating and researching you know these characters for your books. Like, right. what's like the longest like shadowing moment you've ever done, and what's like the shortest? Hmm. So. I would say, I mean, it, sometimes length is, is a function of where you have to go. The hardest research physically that I ever had to do was to get to the Alaskan tundra mm. um, in January to a town that that didn't have any roads in it. It had only six blocks of roads. So you would fly, I flew from Anchorage to Akiak, Alaska on a cargo plane, which they usually fly sled dogs on. And then once I got to Akiak, I had to take a snow machine up a frozen river that got a, a highway number in the winter, another 60 miles. And it was 38 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Oh, and I had food poisoning, but that was not no. related. <laughs> So like that was that was the trip and I was going to the home of a Yupik Eskimo man and it was really cool and you know I brought him What was his home like? Oh it was it was like a little tiny row house it was you know like a really small community with like one basketball hoop at the end of the block um and it was very snowy and they have uh you know they didn't have plumbing so they had something called a honey bucket which let me tell you was not a honey bucket yep. but that was where he went to the bathroom and you know he gave me dried Is salmon there a corner and, store or something no nope. No. How do you get food and stuff? They make it. They they like basically make salmon jerky all summer long and then they use that in the winter. And I brought him fresh oranges. How many people were there? I don't remember. It was him and his wife when I went to visit them. But I don't remember how many other people were in the town. It was it was a long time ago. Like 50? 20. Uh, like I don't remember probably girl. closer like 30 something oh like that. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. intense. Yeah. What other like really interesting crazy places have you been? Uh I lived with the Amish for a while for uh 2 weeks when what I was town? doing research. Or like not what town like what state? It was uh Pennsylvania. It was Gap, Pennsylvania. Where okay, so Pennsylvania is kind of like a rectangle, right? She's kind of like a sideways rectangle. Yeah. Where is she, like, in the rectangle? I have no idea. Because in, in <laughs> Evil Genius, you know, Eerie, like, that crazy, you yeah. know, Netflix thing, like, that was kind of, like, right by the lake. She's, like, the upper left side. I don't think I was there. I don't, I honestly I'm don't a remember. I'm a geography queen. I just like to picture it. But anyway, so you're, like, in a corner. I like, don't even know if I'm going north or south on a daily basis. So. Um, but so you're there for two weeks. Yeah. And when you're uh -huh. getting up at, like, pre-sunrise. Yeah, I was like, milking the cows with them. I was, you know, working in the kitchens with the women. I was doing interviews. Um, I I mean, that was a fascinating experience, too. And eventually, like, they, for them, deeds speak much louder than words. So if they saw me pitching in, then they were willing to begrudgingly talk to me more because I was part of their you know uh -huh. basically their community and um, at one point they do a Bible reading they don't study the Bible they just read it and they do it every day after they, they don't the study the Bible they don't interpret it they just read it as word and what does that mean? Like, in general, that's, like, a rule? Yeah, it's basically, I don't know where our government's headed right now, frankly. But, but yeah, that's what they do. They don't, they don't interpret. They just want to read what they believe is the word of God. So they read it in German, but because I was there, they took the Bible in English. Do they English speak down. German? Uh, it's like a dialect of, of Germanic Dutch, kind of. That's but, they, kind of but that's what they speak day in and day out. Um, yeah. So, but they don't interpret the Bible. But they kind of maybe do because there's like, is there like some rule in the Bible where there's like never electricity ever uh, or something? Not that I know of, but yeah, but no. she's a long book, that Bible, <laughs> honey. 
No, she yeah. is. <laughs> it's true. Because it's like, yeah. really? Did you read the whole thing? I, like, I have, actually. You for did? A different book. Yeah. You I read did. the whole Bible? I had to, yeah. It God, was that's like my boring. mom. She needlepoints like everyone is stocking like in my family. Like every time there's like a new baby, she starts to, and I'm like, why? It's a, you're, you have the work ethic of like of an Amish person, honey. I do, I do. Not to stereotype so, yeah. the Amish because I'm sure there's like a lazy Amish person somewhere. No, they aren't. They're the hardest working people I've there's ever met. There's not one that just doesn't fit in that's like, I don't want to do this. Uh, not that I met. They're they're pretty dedicated, I think. What and wait, So, and then where else have you been? Oh, uh, let's see. I'm sorry, giving you the 21 no, questions about where you went. Did I've where, been to, um, to death row. Um, oh. I have uh, worked with an elephant See researcher. See what you're saying about like the subjects no one wants to touch. Yeah, right. Exactly. So you interviewed someone who was like on death row. Yeah. Are they gone now? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. Um, but and I also I had. But did you interview like the like the family of the? Uh huh. Yeah, and I also interviewed. So what um, do you think about capital punishment now? I'm yeah. Dead set against it. Yeah. What you was know, the victim's family? Did they feel vindicated by it or so whatever? The, interestingly, uh, it was a guy. His name was Robert Towery. Um, that was the, the inmate that I got to know. And he had been convicted of... Um, he basically uh, committed an armed robbery while stoned out of his mind. and Only on weed? No, 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 no. He was, like, high on everything, basically. Okay, you know what? Yeah. I, can I just say, in the bodyguard... <laughs> Um, no, Rachel Marin's sister, Whitney Houston's sister, she's like, when, when Kevin Costner's like, you know, why did you hire this hitman and stuff? And she's like, I don't know. I was very stoned. It's like, no, it's like, you don't get the high on weed and like order a hitman on your sister, you know? So I just feel like we need to stop calling, because like stone, because okay. no, cause like I feel like my grandma, she's dead now, but I feel like, but I feel like there's a generation that like associates marijuana use with doing yeah. like really fucking crazy stuff. No, 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 no. He was, I mean, like, so he was like high, high on meth. Yeah, or, I think it was crack. heroin. Yeah, yeah heroin. And yes. so he, um, not some gorgeous little baby weed. No, it wasn't no one weed. gets just stoned on some weed and goes and does an armed robbery, honey. No, no, no. You no, might no, go to no, Taco no, Bell. No, you no, might have an armed robbery of a Taco Bell. It gets worse, Jonathan. Wait, he but not with a just, gun. No, no, he didn't armed robbery. But then he told the guy that he was going to the guy who owned the store. He was going to just knock him out with like a sedative, and instead he injected battery acid into the guy's veins and killed him. That's why he was on death row. Fuck, yeah, that's so see, fucked up. that's what I'm saying. So he told him in a syringe. She's like, "Oh, this is just I'm going to knock you out." Yeah, and so he spent like 13 years getting Shh. sober, and he did. And he was a very accomplished artist. He wound up doing restorative justice therapy with the victim's family. They had gotten to a point where they did not wish for him to be executed either, but the state of Arizona executed him. And when you actually look at the statistics behind capital punishment, you know, all of the reasons that people say they're for it, like it reduces, um, you know, recidivism rates and it, uh, you know, it's a deterrent. All those things are actually dead wrong. The the, the uh, states that have the highest rates of capital punishment also have uh, the highest rates of murder and, and things like that. So like right now in my home state, New Hampshire, we're trying really hard to overturn the death penalty because it hasn't been used since the 1940s. And I hope they can do it. I also think it's strange that if the family doesn't wish for this, mm -hmm. shouldn't that supersede the state? You know, it doesn't. I also think it's really I mean, this is like kind of did you see um, making a murderer? No, I haven't. Very interesting. Yeah. I think you'd be very inter like on a plane, yeah. and you spend enough time on a plane, and also <laughs> just like with your research and stuff. Yeah. I'm sure you'd be able to like. I heard great things about it, but, but I, I, yeah. it would be so fascinating to read or to watch things with you, or like because I yeah. bet you have a more um like critical lens of like yeah. taking things on as like fact or not. Like you know, like because mm. I think we also have like sometimes like I read something, I'm like, am I sure that's true? Like, am I not? Like, I bet you have a more like critical lens of that because yeah, you want it to. I mean, all and I. I well, you guys, two seconds. We'll be back with Morgan and Curious right after this. 
Honey, take a moment and just think to yourself, describe yourself in one word. Are you simple, sophisticated, or adventurous? However you dress, the stylist at Stitch Fix can help you find your favorite piece. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. First, you complete a style profile, then an expert personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your preferences. They even have men's and kids' boxes too, which we love, honey. Let's get everyone, uh, you know, taken care of. Plus, I'm sure you can mix and match if they aren't, you know, in the dark ages. What if you want something from both? With no subscription required, you can pick between automatic shipments or only getting new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. Plus, the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep from your box. We love our Stitch Fix personal stylists. I can customize my own gorgeous preferences, whether it's sizing, brand, or budget. Once you finish the style quiz and set up your ideal number of deliveries, honey, you'll receive everything from jewelry to shoes to bags, all to go with your hand-picked outfits. I love that. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash JVN and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's S-T-I-T-C-H fix.com slash JVN for an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. Support for today's show comes from Rakuten. Rakuten is a free member-based loyalty program that lets you earn up to 40% cash back at over 2,500 stores. It's perfect for all your back-to-school shopping needs. Get cash back on everything from school supplies to new clothes at some of your favorite retailers like Macy's, Forever 21, Walmart, and more. And don't worry, it's always free. No gimmicks, no points to redeem. Better yet, Rakuten is so simple and easy to use. Simply go to Rakuten.com, click on the retailer you're looking for to activate the cash back, and then shop as normal. You'll earn a percentage of every purchase you make up to 40% cash back. Then, every three months, members will be paid in the form of a check or via PayPal. Sign up today at Rakuten.com. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. If there is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you are not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time and for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Getting curious with Jonathan Van Ness listeners can get 10% off your first month with the discount code JVN. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash JVN. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with the counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash JVN. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Um, I don't even want to lose that train of thought because, you know, this her brain is a, it's a runaway train. Uh, we are here with best-selling author, uh, creative brain extraordinaire, Jody Pico. I, I nailed it the you second did. time, right? So good. Oh, my God, so good. 10 out of 10. I'm French, basically. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, 
critical lens of of how you interpret things. So, but sometimes you think the states they do they just run a muck, honey, because like right. the state the state courts are so powerful, like in our constitution. Yes, but they really can run a muck if you mm. get on the wrong side of one. So let me tell you a little about research for my new book because yeah. this actually plays really strongly into it, and it's really topical and really timely. So Spark of Light came out uh, this October, and it's basically about abortion rights in America. And uh, it takes place in a clinic in Mississippi, the last surviving abortion clinic in Mississippi. That actually is true. There's only one left. Um, And, you know, it's fictionalized for the purpose of my book. But uh, a gunman comes in one day with a grudge, starts shooting, and he kills some patients and some employees, and he takes the rest hostage, including the 15-year-old daughter of the hostage negotiator outside who doesn't realize his daughter is in the clinic. So that's kind of the setup for it. And, um, and, you know, the reason I wrote it was because... I had a friend who had an abortion when we were in college. I supported her a thousand percent. She was seven weeks pregnant. Years later, I was pregnant with my third child and I was seven weeks pregnant and I was spotting, went to the doctor and was told, you may not be able to keep this pregnancy. And I was devastated because to me, that was already a baby. And I couldn't figure out why both of those could be true in my head. You know, and I think kind both of, of what could be true, how a, you could have at, at, in college, I could say a seven-week pregnancy should be terminated because that's what my my friend wanted to do. But here at seven weeks pregnant, I so badly wanted that because it was a baby to me. Yeah. How can you have both? How can they coexist? And, you know, it made me think about where we stand on that spectrum of um, of whether we're pro-life or pro-choice in this country. And I think that where we stand doesn't depend on whether we define ourselves as pro-life or pro-choice because one woman might change her mind over the course of a single lifetime because what you believe at 15 isn't what you believe at 30 and it's not what you believe at 45. And ultimately, the real problem comes because we legislate abortion rights in this country, but laws are black and white and the lives of women are thousands of shades of gray, right? And so you bring up states' rights because that is how we got into this mess. You know, the reason I began getting so heated up under the collar when I was doing research for this book is because since 2012, there have been over 280 laws passed at the state level to restrict access to abortion. And that's why we have currently eight states that have only one clinic left. So what happens whenever there's something that happens at the state level, there's an appeal and it keeps getting appealed until it gets to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court goes, oh, well, we have Roe versus Wade and there's only one clinic left in, you know, Missouri. So, all right, well, we're going to have to just overturn this law because it would be unfair to women who want to have an abortion to not have a single clinic in their state. Apparently, that's undue burden to the Supreme Court. So now we've got Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court and things change. And if they overturn Roe versus Wade, what happens is they're not going to ban abortion. They're going to say it's up to the states. Right. No big deal, right? Well, it is a big deal because when it goes back to the state level, we begin to see how insidious all of those state laws can be. So like in 2016, there was a law passed in Texas saying that um, that all abortion clinics had to have – Hallways. A, no, it was hallways, right, to pass two gurneys. Yep. And surgical suites because of all the complications. Abortion is actually the safest surgical procedure you can have. 0.3% of women have complications and um, things that are more complicated than than abortions, liposuction, vasectomy, colonoscopy, having a baby, all those things, more risky. You know, but – 
when they passed that law in 2016, half the clinics closed. And by the time it was overturned, they stayed closed. In 2016 in Indiana, Mike Pence was governor. He signed a law saying that you couldn't have an abortion because of a fetal abnormality. Instead, women had to be counseled in in uterine hospice, which meant letting the fetus die inside of you and be expelled, at which point you had to either cremate or bury the remains, even if the parents didn't wish that. Fun fact, that will probably be the first case that Kavanaugh sits on that is abortion-related in the Supreme Court. And then in 2014, there was uh, a law in Alabama that said if you wanted to get a judicial waiver and you were a kid and you didn't want your parents to know you were getting an abortion, so you want a judge to sign off on it, and you went to court, you would have had a seasoned lawyer standing opposite you arguing as the voice of your fetus. Think of how terrifying that would be for a 13-year-old. I mean, that is like full-on... Handmaid's Tale. Yes. And we're not that far away from that. And the minute abortion goes back to the states, those eight states that have only one clinic, that's gone. And all of a sudden, women are at the mercy of the And what are these eight states? Oh, God, I don't know them all by heart. But But it's um, like Mississippi. Mississippi is one. Wyoming is one. Missouri is one. Um, I honestly don't know all of them by heart. I used to. Uh, But, you know, it's... It's really upsetting because we are not that far away. And but the other thing, too, yes. Yes. and it's But it's also really important that when you live in New York where, like, you can, if you want to terminate a pregnancy, it's pretty easy for you to go to a clinic and do that. It's really important that women and men, too, in New York understand that there are people in southern states that don't have that option. But, like, so my mom <laughs> is pro-life, right? My mom okay, is, like, cool. very pro-life. Yep. Um, and the fight that we always have is, is like, well, it, it's fine if you believe that that's conceived in and whatever, but, like, I think it's a different thing to have the government or a state legislating, like, you know, what a woman needs to do with her body and the, you know, and, and like legislating morality. Cause I just think that it's like so slippery. And, right. and also it's like wherever you're getting, um, you know, because there's medical and then there's like religious. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, babies couldn't live if they weren't for, if it yeah. wasn't for them. You know, I mean, there's no right. viable way. So I guess like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, like all of those, I guess I, I guess I could start to see that. But to demonize mm-hmm. an abortion, you know, right. when there's health and, right. you know, eco- economic and socio and so many different, you know, exactly. uh, factors at play. And to demonize women, like demonizing American women, like they're, because really you're saying that all American women are murderers. Right. Like so, you're saying, so all American women are murderers, like your mom's right. a murderer, your sister's, so many women have abortions. And and really when you're legislating, and, and why are we, separation mm-hmm. of church and state is so fundamental to the way that we think right. of ourselves as American. Right. And I think that, you know, and the 80s, uh, you know, Bush and so many Republicans really like, you know, offered themselves to the extreme right and the extreme right. And we're seeing that right. play. And we saw that with HIV. We see that with abortion. We see that about because it, it's interesting how like the Republican Party on their face is like, you know, small government and states rights mm-hmm. unless it has to do with abortion, mm-hmm. marijuana, right. gay stuff. Then yep. we do believe in big federal regulation. Right. And, you know, we definitely believe in like. Right. Controlling everything. And so there's so much there's so much I have to speak to about that. So first of all, the um, the idea that that people who are pro-life and I spoke to many pro-life people and most of them are lovely people who come from a place of deep compassion and really don't want to be seen as anti-woman. They just really believe a fetus is a baby. It's it's to them a life and and a, a human and they don't understand how else to go about saying anything except I'm against this, you know. For me, it comes down to a question of bodily autonomy. If you're pro-life, the reason you're arguing is because you think that that unborn fetus should have a say in what happens to its body, right? Because it is a person. 
Well, at what point during the process does the woman stop being a person? At what point during that pregnancy should she not have a right to speak out about her body as well? When you tell me how to balance that Solomon's choice, then I'm, then let's have a conversation. Well, I think what they would say is, is like, well, you know, she should have thought of that before she had like unprotected sex and she should have worn a condom. But then those probably are also like religious fundamentalists and like don't believe in like contraception or something. Which so that is could another be another big thing. problem. That's another really big problem because the easiest way to reduce the abortion rate is, of course, to have widely available contraception and sex ed classes. We've seen this. The birth rate in America is 31 per thousand. In Canada, it's half that. In Sweden and France, it's 6 and 7 percent. And it's all because of... What does that mean? That 31 teenagers per thousand get pregnant in America. Now. Now. And that's like fallen from like when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Like that like But it's fallen up. because of accessible contraception. Right. And you know? education, which right. are actively trying to fight against and reduce. Right. And yeah. so if you... If you you know, if you're, say, you're pro-life and you're against contraception, you're against sex ed, that is not being all of a sudden, you know, that's not about a baby. You're preventing the baby from even happening, right? You're really just anti-woman if you're against contraception. That's what it comes down to. So I Because you don't we, want her to have right. a say. In, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was something you just said about the demonization of women. And this was really important to me when I was doing my research. I interviewed 151 women who had terminated pregnancies. One of them regretted it. All of them thought about it daily. And of those 151, less than 25 wanted their names in the book. And they wanted to be acknowledged as anonymous or with a pseudonym or an initial. Because even years after having an abortion, they haven't told their parents, their friends, their coworkers, their spouses. They never, they never said it because they've been living in this culture of, of shame. And, you know, I was on tour for this book during the Kavanaugh hearings. And I was listening to Dr. Blasey Ford. And I was listening to what happens when women do not tell their stories. When women don't speak up, other people write narratives for us and their narratives of blame and guilt and shame. Women are meant to believe that they are making this decision in a vacuum. In reality, one out of four women in this country will terminate a pregnancy over the course of her lifetime. One in four. Mm-hmm. And it's, I wonder how many of those one in four like end up publicly campaigning. Very few. No, no, no. I mean, uh, for to be, yeah, against abortion. Yeah. Like, I think that oh. there is a culture of shame yes. of, like, so many women that are, like, on the surface of, you know, would actively mm-hmm. campaign against it. Right. And then, and because, I mean, I know I'm not trying to, like, make everything an HIV-AIDS thing, but, honey, the, George H.W. passing away, this it has been very troubling for me. I just how, had this conversation. And it's, yeah. like, because, I mean, it it was, uh, it was 23,411, mm-hmm. like, Americans had died. And, yep. and also because he purposely and Reagan, like they both went out of their way to divert money away mm-hmm. from research. And, and thank God we had like Elizabeth Taylor and, and there was mm-hmm. people that, you know, that's like when celebrity became something that like we had, we had to be into gov- together because the government was going out of their way to make it. Yeah. I mean, but they presided over like a plague, like I an, know. An, an absolute epidemic and yeah. purposely diverted money from research and treatment. Mm-hmm. And then we eulogize these people like they are like, and so, and the thing with with abortion is, is that like if you don't have safe access to healthcare for women, like it's in alleys, it's in underground. Like women die, women died all the time, like yep. pre Roe v. All the time, yeah. And it'll happen again. There's no question about it. And um, I just don't understand yeah. like why. Well, I and, but actually I saw this really interesting meme the other day that was like it was like a picture of like a woman's hand and a man's hand with like an apple, and it said like women like they've been demonized since the beginning of yeah. time. Mm-hmm. 
Because it's like, why was the lady the one that like, right? You know, I do think that that is like a thing. Yeah. Um, but oh, but back to the the George H W yeah. thing with HIV is there were so many young, and I'm not trying to like do the Becky thing here, but there were so many young white women on the comments that were like, "How dare you? Like, can't you let a grieving family grieve? Like, they're burying a grandfather." No, no, no. And I think, and, and so many people were like, "Classless, unfollowing." And, and I, and I doubt that a lot of those girls were following me to begin with. <laughs> but if those yeah. girls like had lost their yeah. kid to HIVs and, and with a president that was like actively making sure that research and, and money didn't go to like any sort, of, right. I mean that they, it's nuts. Yeah. And I do think that there is like this culture of. Uh, there's a big culture around like guilt and shame around uh, white women where they, I think that they publicly in in order, I don't know what it is to show something. I, I honestly don't know what it is. And I don't want to speak for these women. I'm not trying to demonize women as we're talking about like, the demonization of women. Right. But there is this certain kind of woman who will like to your face, mm-hmm. like do all of these certain things. But then in the, but behind the scenes, she's really working towards these like other so every abortion provider that I spoke with, and I wound up shadowing an amazing I guy. I didn't say that right. I hope no, you I can know understand what, you, I know what, what I'm trying saying, to say. I'm going to try to support you on this. Yes. Um, this guy, Dr. Willie Parker, who is this incredible crusader for women's rights. He's honestly the biggest feminist I've ever met. He's an African-American abortion provider who um, is a devout Christian and says he provides abortions not in spite of his religion but because of it. And he, I shadowed him in Mississippi when he flies into all these underserved areas. And I got to see three different abortions in the room, which was really eye-opening. And every abortion provider, including Willie, told me that they have had multiple women on their tables or their daughters who were protesters outside the day before and who go back to protesting the day after. And they even said, we get it, because that's how they construct their worldview and who they are. And if they suddenly change their mind, people would know they had an abortion. And that can't happen, of course. You know, so there's that. I did a book tour. I went to the Deep South for this book tour. I had more people tell me in North Carolina at a single event than all the other events put together. More women came up to me afterward to say, I had an abortion when I was 18, when I was 20, when I was 30. But I'm pro-life. They wanted me to know that. And I said to every single one of them, I'm so glad you had that choice when you needed it. That's what it comes down to. Because we shouldn't be legislating, like, other people's lives, really. And I didn't mean to say that, like, women are, like, you know, public will do this. But I just think that there's, like, there is because of, like, the culture of guilt and shame that we've created Mm -hmm. around, like, sex and religion. And especially in this country, I think we really, there is so much legislation that's so intertwined, like, enmeshed with religion. Yeah. For a country that was, you know, started... To on, separate that, that's kind of interesting. Because it really, when you think about yeah. it, you know. So I feel like I'm, title of your last book. A Spark of Light. Spark of Light. Get it together. Love that story. <laughs> Thank you so much. For, it's like, not you get it together, like the people get it together. Also, <laughs> like read it. These are the seven states, though, that are down to one yeah. abortion clinic. Kentucky, West Virginia, Missouri, where I just got done wrapping Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Mississippi. And why that does matter is is if you are an underprivileged woman and you don't have money to get a plane ticket or a bus ride to wherever, um, that is... It's a substantial problem, and there's there's so many health risks like to women, and there is just it's a really substantial problem. And 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 I think the other thing I was going to say earlier when I said when I started to say, however, 
the reason that so many of these state laws were able to get passed was because of like the Tea Party and the very diligent, useful, you know, resourcing of like state legislator takeover in 2010 by the Republican Party. And we are able to do the same to the left. If we all wake up and band together and start talking about this, mm-hmm. we can even reverse these in these seven states if we use our mouths and in, right. and use the things that have been given to us, like Sister District that we talked about in this podcast, like there are ways that we can get involved even in places where we don't live by like, you know, getting creative and changing our approach. Right, totally. We are a resourceful people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that a lot of the people that have, especially like, you know, places like West Virginia um, that feel like left behind in Kentucky, like with coal mining, like that feel left behind by the economy. If we come at this from a place of like compassion and intelligence, right? Um, I do think that we can win over hearts and minds. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, it is... Somehow, or maybe not. I could be delusional. No, it's it's just, it's really important, again, to remember that if you don't live there, there are people already, women already are are somehow struggling because of restrictions that have been created by the state, whether you're talking about a 48-hour a waiting period between your initial appointment and then having Which an reason any of those legislations were even able to pass was in 92 because of that landmark case. And also, right. if you have not seen... Um, uh, assault on abortion. What's that Netflix documentary on abortion? So the trap laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? Um, it's all about the trap laws. But it's all about abortions. Like this, yeah. it's, it's something about like the assault on the great, reversing yeah. row. Right. Reversing row. Watch that, honey. Have you? you yeah, I've watched it. Oh my god. Before. Yeah. Whew. I mean, she gave me anxiety. I had to watch like four hours of British Baking Challenge after that <laughs> to like. But you know what I should have done is I should have watched it and then called like eighteen senators and then uh, rewarded myself with some, or even better right. yet, some local senators, honey. Up in there and use that little thing to like change my yeah. little phone so it seemed like I was coming from local, honey, so I could seem like I was a constituent and then blow their phone up about, but you know, my access to healthcare. Here's the thing that I think is really important. If you, I, I haven't had an abortion, but if I had, I hope I would be brave enough to tell someone, to tell a friend, to tell my children, because that is how it, it's very much like, you know, kind of like what Harvey Milk said. It's a lot harder to demonize someone if they are your sister, your friend, your neighbor, your teacher. When you see the face of, of who the women are who have to make this choice, suddenly it's a lot less scary. And so if you feel brave enough to do that, even to tell one person, you might give another woman the courage to speak out. That's how we take the narrative back. That's how we prove that women matter and that women's stories matter. Uh. <sighs> Jody, thank you so much for your time. Also, quickly, um, this is the point in the podcast where it's like the end of the yoga class. Like, you know, you really wanted to work, you know, arm balances today, but I was just like, no inversions. We're working on basics. Um, you know, like you get to, it's yogi recess. You know, you got, got like, you got one to three minutes. Like, what do we need to know about? Like, what do you want to talk about? Is there anything that we didn't cover? We need to, what do we need to do? Oh my gosh. I mean, I could talk to you about Kansas City because I was there while we were putting up our first out-of-town performance of a musical that was adapted from one of my books called Between the Lines. Oh. It was super fun. Love. Yes. She's a pretty city. She's very cute. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. They have great food there. Mm-hmm. Really good food. They have gorgeous food. Yep. And um, really nice spaces to walk. Like yes, they do. You, right? Gorgeous nice walking parks. spaces. Yep. yep. And um, yeah, and that, you know, that's... That I no I, abortion clinics, yeah, but but because I think really that one's nice in parts. St. Louis. Yeah. That one's in St. Louis. I think the only one in Missouri. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but but lovely, uh, lovely parks for whatever that's worth. Um, yeah, and that you know, I mean, I I'm really lucky that I get to write the things that I write, and I have no plans to stop doing that. Um, well, <laughs> I would never want you to keep doing that. I want you to keep exercising that gorgeous muscle, Henny. That brain of yours is so amazing. And I just thank you so much for giving me your time and coming on. And uh, you guys will be able to follow Jody at uh, at all the links on this episode. And th- just thank you so much for your time. And thanks, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Vaness. My guest this week was Jody Pico. You'll find links to Jody Pico's work and socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at JBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a gorgeous little review in Apple Podcasts. It's Sashir and Nicole from Best Best Friends. Our podcast has been out for a few months. If you haven't listened to it, you should. We've already asked the big questions in life. Imagine if we could lay eggs. Okay, sure. (laughs) I guess we... Wouldn't that be funny if you could eat from yourself? No, because that's like cannibalism. Not when you eat yourself. What? Hmm? Answer listener questions. Hi, Nicole and Sashir. What happens if Sashir dies first? I mean, I've never thought of that. Well... I would be so sad. <laughs> oh no, Nicole. Nicole. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna die. Take BuzzFeed quizzes. Let's pick eight foods and we'll give you a sex position to try. Whoa. This is wild. Plus, we bring on other funny best friends to talk about their friendship. I almost wanna cry. I feel, I don't know why that really made me feel emotional, but. It's because <laughs> it's pure to talk about it friendship. It's nice. It's so nice. It's like so rare to like articulate it, but she's always there for me. Like, I, I think she's just somebody who. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love it so much. <laughs> oh my God. It's really sweet. Best Friends with Nicole Byer and Sashir Zameda is new every Wednesday. On Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen. Oh, my God. To it. <laughs>